Hello and welcome to episode four of the Duchess of Science. Today I'm joined by Angina Katwa, a geoscientist, award-winning, and we are going to answer your questions. So diving straight in, we have our first question. Dear Duchess, I'm a first-year PhD student and yet to publish a paper. I feel like I'm falling behind already. How worried should I be? Oh, well, thanks for having me on. And and that's a really interesting question because in the layers behind that question, I can sense a lot of kind of lacking of self-confidence and self-esteem. And I I think the first thing to say is, please don't worry. You have your whole career to publish papers. And I think my advice would be, in a nutshell, is, is to kind of really focus on developing that love and that understanding and that joy for your science because that is what will carry you through your PhD and ultimately that will then develop a passion and a focus for writing the papers that you need to write. Yeah and I I think just to add obviously with the pandemic we just need to remind people to be a little bit more gentle with themselves Um, you know if you're not exactly where you feel like you should be just, uh, you know, take take uh, the situation into consideration, I, I would say as well. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is so much pressure to judge yourself. I mean, if you haven't made a sourdough starter, what kind of person are you? <laughs> you know, if you haven't done exactly. that during the pandemic. And I think if we translate that to papers, and, and there has been so much work and study done into the disparity of experiences of academics, particularly women, during this pandemic could have childcare, you know, childcare responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So I think the critical thing is, is absolutely to put yourself first and to, to kind of look at your own experiences rather than comparing yourself to others, because others may have support, they may not have children or, or, you know, elderly people to look after, they may not be suffering from what you're suffering in your own life circumstances. So, you know, it's, I'm not necessarily saying stay in your lane, but what I'm saying is be focused on your needs and what is best for you. And I think at the end of the day, yes, the pandemic has meant labs have been closed and you've not been able to go on field work or you've not been able to, to meet the people you should have met to have those wonderful conversations that inspire your research. So taking all that into account, it's it's kind of almost being yet gentle to yourself and having that conversation that your time will come we will reach a point where normality hopefully some kind of normal resumes itself but it's you know this is your journey this is your PhD and and it's and it's being aware that that you've got to own that process um, in its entirety but not let others kind of damage your self-esteem if you like absolutely I think yeah it's it's a key point is is you know, it's not a race and you don't need to sort of hit those benchmarks at exactly the same time as other people because everybody's project is different. It's um That's that's right. And you know, there are there are funding streams out there and I, I work for a particular charity as a grants assessor called the British Federation of Women Graduates. And over the last year or so where we've been assessing grant applications and our particular charity funds women um, studying for you know PhDs in whatever subject you could be studying French poetry or you know biochemistry or whatever it might be and 
you know, we've seen so many applications from women who have struggled during this pandemic to complete their PhDs um, and, and, you know, do their writing up, you know, to reach that deadline and that target on time. And, you know, it's heartbreaking because we have to sift through the applications and choose ones that we put forward to, to fund. So I think, I think if you, if you do need that funding, that funding support is out there and, and you need to just be, be slightly on the game to apply for those grants if you need that help. But you are not alone. And I think, I think that's also really important to understand is you're part of that wider community of people that, that are struggling. Absolutely. So um, should we move on to question two? Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. This one's a bit more of a toughie. So, dear Duchess... I'm part of a very international research group and generally it's a great place to be. That said, I'm the only black person in the lab and I have one day-to-day problem that I'm not sure how to approach. My colleague has a bad habit of starting sentences with, I hope nobody will think I'm racist for saying this, before bringing someone's race into the conversation. What she follows up with isn't necessarily racist, more like stereotyping, but it happens a lot like maybe two or three times a day. She does the same with other marginalized groups, but I think some of that is down to having English as a second language and not down to bad intentions. What she is saying is not necessarily offensive, more the words that she's using to say it. Recently, she's been referring to herself as devoted to diversity and inclusion. So I know her intentions are good, but I feel awkward when she speaks like this because it is so obvious that she has some work to do. I feel like I should speak to her and explain how her words come across, but at the same time, I don't want to offend her or be called out for mansplaining. What do you think? Well, that's... <laughs> I think we're going to sum up that whole experience in one word, which is microaggressions. And Absolutely. I think, I think if you are a minority person and, and you know, I, I'm not sh- you know, we know that she's making comments about race, so so, you know... Those microaggressions are directed, you know, in a way that is hurtful to somebody who identifies as a black, Asian or, or minority ethnic person. I think I think that's quite clear from that, that comment. And, and when we talk about microaggressions, they are little paper cuts. So I think what we have to imagine is, although they seem quite innocuous and inoffensive, and this person is kind of glossing over the comment with, well, you know, English isn't my first language, and, you know, I don't really understand this. Every paper cut adds up. And and as, as those paper cuts build up, it actually begins to really harm, and it really begins to hurt. And actually, then you begin to have those scars that, that that really don't go away. And what we need to do is we need to avoid getting to that point where, where you know, your mental health and your ability to function in that workplace actually starts to be affected by those microaggressions. So my advice would be, rather than taking that burden on yourself, um, is to look towards others to help you help you I'm, I'm gonna say educate that person I'm using that term very loosely because I don't want to be didactic about it but what I mean is you need to look for allies in your workplace because it, the, the, the soul's responsibility of, of helping this person understand where their microaggressions are hurting should not be yours should not fall on your shoulders mm-hmm. and I believe that others in the workplace when they talk about allyship and when they put those black squares on Instagram Let's see where you are. Let's see. Let's see if you can put your money where your mouth is, and let's see those folks come out and speak on behalf of you 
to kind of help this particular person understand that their language and their behavior and their actions aren't appropriate. Absolutely. And I think I think I would sort of add to that when it comes to allies. Um, I can really feel in this situation that the letter writer is being incredibly um, sympathetic to this person who, who is essentially, you know, making their life more difficult. Um, and I can well imagine because, I mean, what they're saying is very similar to I'm not racist, but, and, you know, I think, I think people need to be more aware of how this is a tool, really, for racism to persist in, in the sense that if you start your sentence by making it clear that you would be terribly upset to be called racist or to be thought of as racist, you are creating a dynamic where actually it's it, it's very difficult for people to call you out on it. Um, yeah, it's, and so I'd go on. Sorry. Yeah, for allies, it's um, you know maybe maybe important to uh, to become more attuned when people say these things um, and and hear it in the same way that the people receiving it hear it, which is not um, you know that this is the reason that we sh- we should all be falling over ourselves to sympathize and, and protect the feelings of the person who is making these comments. It's, um, it, but I do understand why it's difficult because, you know, they, they set up every single exchange with this uh, sort of... Yeah, it's a caveat, isn't it? It's, I'm yeah. going to say this racist comment, but there is a caveat because I've got a black friend, therefore I can't possibly be racist or <laughs> I don't understand yeah. your culture. Or the best one I hear, because I live in quite a rural area with lots of white people and particularly elderly people, is when mm-hmm. they, they use the term coloured to me, you know, Ooh. oh, you know, yeah, exactly. And then you have to, in your head, you're making a, a choice about whether to call them out because they're, you know, whatever in their 70s mm. and is that an age thing or, or what you know, and it actually isn't and it's my role to then intervene and say actually we don't use that term anymore and this is why I would prefer if you want to talk to, refer to my race please use this word instead so there's a way to be diplomatic mm. without triggering and I use the word trigger again very loosely without triggering that defensive structure that immediately comes up with people like oh well I'm not a racist you know because it's you you sometimes especially where this the letter writer is working in this environment and they're going to have to be there for a number of years because of their research you have to negotiate these spaces very diplomatically and carefully Um, and it shouldn't have to be like that but it is because that is the reality of the situations that we're working in and I think I think where where I talk about allyships and my experience has been you know where I thought I had allies actually they weren't because when I needed them most they turned their backs on me they they kind of just literally turned their faces to the injustice that I experienced and you know when that happens to you and you're looking around the room you know thinking that somebody is going to come and have your back on a certain situation and they don't that can deeply, deeply hurt you and damage your self-confidence. So almost what I think the pro- the process here needs to be is is talk to your talk to the talk to the people that are in your in crowd, the people that you can trust, and just generally have a conversation about how these comments are upsetting you, hurting you, and defining them as these microaggressions, these these paper cuts. And then it's almost like formulating a strategy of 
you know, well, if, if this person says these comments again, will you be there? Will you support me? Are you going to say something? Because I, my concern is that the onus is always on the letter writer to step up to the plate and to mm. call it out. And then what you then come, become is the, is the troublemaker, which is kind of what happened to me in my situation was I was always the one talking about diversity and I was always the one, you know, kind of championing those messages. And then I was kind of labeled as this person who was a problem because you know no one else was allied in that in that voice and in that cause so yeah Mm. I think there has to be a I think the letter writer has to carefully plan a almost like a strategy a strategy yeah yeah, to to go into that situation yeah I really agree with what you're saying there because I mean, I've been in that situation. I think we've all been in that yes. situation, actually, if, if, if you're sort of in any way concerned with diversity and inclusion. And especially if you're not a white person, y- you do feel very aware that, you know, you, become, you sometimes sound a bit like a, a stuck record. And, um, you know, because you are the, always the person that is having to call it up and you, you can sort of feel that change in the atmosphere of you know, everybody's starting to look and say, well, you know, maybe this is just something that they're a bit obsessed with or, you know, and so I completely agree that in this situation, yeah, I think, sorry, go on. Yeah, you just, you know, you don't want to put yourself in that position of, um, you know, be, being the person that always brings it up and, and everybody being able to turn around and, and say, oh, you know, this guy just has a chip on his shoulder. Yes. He is seeing things that don't exist. You know, I think you're absolutely right that sometimes in these situations, you've got to find like a proper ally who is an ally in actions yes. rather than just yeah. words yeah. who will take some of that burden on for you. Because otherwise, you know, we just get into this... Um, it's like a horrible, vicious circle of, you know, you yeah. call out racism and yeah. then everybody gets offended and says, oh, right. you just see racism everywhere. That's right. That's right. And, 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 and then the best one that I heard was when I did call out uh, this particular person for racism, the comment I got back was, well, you need to stop talking about what well, a, a, they didn't like the fact I called them out for racism. But then what, yeah. what came back to me was, well, you're just making us all upset. You're making us look bad by talking about <laughs> racism. And this is from a group of white people. So, mm. you know, it, and what, what, what the problem is, is when people of colour begin to become more active and confident in their voices by calling out racism, particularly in workplace environments, is that we begin to either fall into the racist stereotypes, the tropes that are, you know, our, some of our white colleagues subscribe to so you know you've heard about the angry black woman and you've mm-hmm. heard about you know the worm that turned so for me my colleagues saw me you know as this meek Asian woman quite quiet quite you know kind of yeah you know what I mean it, it kind of like well she she's she's quite easy to kind of you know just she's quite malleable yeah malleable is the right right <laughs> word and then when I spoke back about what I was experiencing there was this utter shock you know like my goodness you know we didn't know that <laughs> we didn't yeah know. you're not expected to behave yeah. like this what are precisely you doing? I'm breaking that stereotype by giving mm. you some of what you need to know and and so you know I think therein therein lies the strength in allyship because then that focus of 
you know, to break that stereotype that people expect of, of us, you know, and, and here specifically, I'm talking about people of colour, is we are looking towards our white allies to support our voices. So, you know, we are pushing against that, that you know, that impression that, that folks yeah, have. Yeah, and I, I think I, I would probably just end by saying to... Um to white people really to to reflect on on uh, this issue and and really stop yourself you know if if you find yourself having to um qualify something that you're going to say and assure people that it's not racist the chances are it probably is yeah yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know i th- i think this is something that all everyone could be more aware of um, oh i think so uh yeah but obviously to the letter writer best of luck and um I also just wanted to highlight that he was worried about being called out for mansplaining and (laughs) I can honestly I can understand why um a lot of men have this fear yes you know of, of speaking up and uh and, and being accused of mansplaining. So I, ju- I just wanted to reassure the letter writer that it's it's not mansplaining if, if you are no. better no. informed than the person you're Precisely. explaining to. Precisely, yeah. You are perfectly entitled to say something. Okay. And then, uh, so last question. This is one personally for you. So, dear Angina, what is the best piece of advice you wish you could go back and give to yourself at the beginning of your postgrad journey? Oh, that that's a tough one, isn't it? I because my postgrad journey was a very long time ago. <laughs> oh my goodness. I it started in and I, I'm, I hate I hate to say this, but it started in nineteen ninety-six and I um, finished a degree in earth sciences at Kingston and then started a PhD at Southampton University. Goodness me, that was nineteen ninety-six. What is the best piece of advice I would give myself? I would tell that young woman who was starting out to believe in herself, to believe in her abilities, her intelligence, her tenacity and her strength to fight whatever life and research and academia threw at her because you wouldn't believe what life threw at me. (laughs) I could tell myself to be to believe in my own strength and my resilience my goodness that that would have carried me through those 3 years and beyond what i what i kind of experienced in my life and my career it's it's a tough one isn't it because you know i i look at you know i've got children as well and I, particularly my daughter you know who when i was a single mother i was on my own with her for a long time and, you know, I, I kind of look, look back on that person as well, you know, quite often, like, you know, in those really dark moments when I was struggling to, you know, balance my career and single motherhood, you know, what would I say to that, that struggling woman as well, who was working all hours to try and try and achieve against all the odds. And again, I would use the same advice, believe in yourself, because, you know, at the end of the day, you are responsible for your own actions. And, you know, I think the more people that can tell you how brilliant you are, and there are people out there that will do that for you, if, if you're not in a position to, to do that yourself, find the people who will tell you that because you need to believe it. You are brilliant. You're doing your PhD against all the odds, particularly now in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And you've got this. You will get there. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, I would say it's um, that is such good advice for 
you know, anyone that, that is in an underrepresented group because I think, you know, we all go into academia and I think everybody has a bit of a romanticized view of it. Um, and it's, uh, I know for myself, you know, I, I, you know, after my undergrad, I, I didn't see any of the problems in academia. It, it wasn't until quite quite a long way into the postgrad process that I, I sort of started to see all of these um, all of these problems and and barriers. Yeah. And what I would say is, um, you know, if if I look back on well, the straight white men that were in the lab with me, or or you know, had progressed in in academia. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't look at them and say that they were particularly, you know, that they were geniuses or much better at science. I mean, I would say that the key difference was exactly as you said, like having confidence in yourself, having, having uh, faith in yourself that, you know, you've earned your place there and you deserve to be there as much as anyone else, probably even more, to be honest. Yes, that's right. You know, and so... Mm. I I absolutely agree and you know wonderful things have happened to me this year and uh, you know I was a recipient of this RH Worth medal from the Geological Society of London with Jasmine Scarlett and we were also fabulous it's also amazing let me just say that Uh, and you know Dr Sam Giles did some research and she found that we are the first women of colour ever to receive a medal an honour from the Geological Society of London in its 200-year history. And I know, I speak 200 years. 200 years. Anyway, it goes without saying that. That is a shock, but Mm -hmm. but how wonderful that both of us are now in a position to be recipients of such prestigious honours. Now, when that came through, I think, you know, immediately you think, oh, my God, you know, what, what a huge surprise. I can't believe it. And then you have to question yourself. Well, well, why shouldn't I believe it? I'm just as worthy. I'm just as worthy as anybody else to receive this recognition. And I think we, particularly those of us that have experienced those knockbacks and the struggles and those obstacles in life, it's so easy to not recognize that you have to work twice, if not three five times mm-hmm. as hard to get to the place where our privileged colleagues, you know, we don't, they don't even need to think about those issues at all. And there, you know, there have been other situations where I've been in and I've just watched those privileged few, particularly white men, just progress, you know, just be put into positions of seniority without question. And, you know, then it, that's really knocked my confidence because I've thought, well, mm-hmm. why not me? you never asked me, you never asked me to apply for that, or you never, they didn't even consider me, or they assumed that I wasn't interested. And, and, you know, that is the kind of oppression and discrimination that, you know, those of us from minority backgrounds have to deal with every day. So when, when you do take that confidence in yourself, my goodness, it can really pay off, because that is then how people will see you and you will embody that in every step of your life, whatever you do, whether you're going to go and run down the street and do a 5K run, or whether you're going to be in the lab and write this storming science paper. Exactly. It's, um, I th- well, I think that's, that's a really lovely, positive place to finish. What do you okay. think? <laughs> I think 
think so, especially because I've just done a run this morning, so I'm feeling super positive <laughs> yeah, and energized. So <laughs> you, you can tell us firsthand about, you know, the benefits of, uh, no, actually, to be, to be fair, um, you know, actually, yes, I would say that. that. That would be my piece of advice that I would add to this person is um, actually about, yeah, taking care of yourself, uh, exercising looking after yourself because um, it's definitely something that I see for postgrads is that, that people hurtle towards um, burnout, try, trying to stress themselves out and trying to, um, you know, keep all of the plates spinning. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to add. Yeah. It doesn't have to be running. No. But, you know, take care of your body and your mental health because... Yeah. There's nothing I love better than just watching some kind of rubbish TV. At the moment, my daughter and I are watching every single kind of competitive show on BBC, whether it's All That Glitters, which is about jewellery makers, or whether it's The Sewing Bee or Bake Off. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, the Bake Off makes everything better. (laughs) (laughs) But... Yeah, so I think I think we should finish on that actually, which is um, yeah, giving everyone permission to um, do do whatever you need to do for your self care, whether it's going for a run, whether it's watching the Bake Off, just keep that confidence in yourself and uh, look after yourself. I would say that's lovely. That's absolutely how I feel about everything in life. So wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Goodbye. Bye.